Well, Brother Long and Brother Barnes kind of stole my thunder. I wanted to start off today with the announcement that I know you've read in your bulletin already and probably got from the email, but we are excited to welcome Sarah Doom into our family, who was baptized on Wednesday night down in Florida. And yes, it's true. It doesn't matter if you're not baptized in Middle Tennessee. It counts just anywhere. And so we are so excited, Sarah, for you to be a part of our family, and we're excited with the Dooms, and we appreciate your example. And we hope that if there's anybody else here today who is not a child of God, that you'll think about the things that we've sung, the things that we've prayed, the things that we're going to learn about from God and from His Word today, and that you might follow in the footsteps of Sarah, but not, not in hers ultimately, in the, ultimately, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ being buried with Him and raised to walk in newness of life. Well, why don't we go ahead and start right now with a prayer. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name because you are awesome and powerful and we are so thankful for the blood of your Son who washes our sins away, who forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We're thankful for your Son who set an example for us. And we're thankful for your Spirit who revealed your Word. And we pray that you would help us to delve inside it, to implant your Word inside our heart, that we might grow in your grace and knowledge that we might be conformed to the image of Your Son, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind as Your Spirit through the Word takes over us and controls us and leads us as we submit to Your Word, the revelation of the Spirit. Father, we love You so much and we thank You for loving us. And we pray that You would be with us today as we study Your Word, that we might understand You and might develop a stronger and greater relationship with You. Father, we praise You for the salvation that You've offered us through Your Son. And we're so thankful that You have been patient with us and with our new sister Sarah, that she's been able to come to repentance. And we pray that You would be patient with others that are here this morning who have heard Your Gospel but have not yet responded. And Father, we pray that You would continue to have that patience, that we might continue to teach, that we might be Your arm in their life, that we might demonstrate to them Your saving Gospel so that they can be Your children, sacrificing themselves on the altar of Your Son. Father, again, we love You, and thank You for loving us. Through Your Son we pray. Amen. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Despite common liberal rhetoric today, the number one document that that has had the most impact on Western law is the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons it's had such great impact is because it is a great summary of man's relationship with God and man's relationship with one another. Now, I recognize fully, let's make sure we understand this before we start taking a look at the Ten Commandments. We, as New Testament Christians, are no longer under the authority of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not our law. Galatians chapter 3 Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The law was our guardian until Christ came. The law is no longer our guardian. It is no longer our tutor. It is no longer our schoolmaster. Look in Romans. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Christ was the goal of the law. Christ was what the law was looking forward to. When Christ came along, the law lost its authority and Christ became all authority. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I understand, I hope you understand, that I still believe that we should have no other gods before us. I still believe that we should not take the Lord, uh, the, na- the name of the Lord in vain, but not because it's in the Ten Commandments, but because that is Christ's law as well. We are no longer under the authority of the Ten Commandments. We are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, having established that fact, I do not think that the Ten Commandments are useless. Rather, I believe that the Ten Commandments demonstrate to us perhaps timeless principles about our relationship with God and our relationship with others. This morning, I would like for us to take a look at the God of the Ten Commandments. And while we are not under the authority of these Ten Commandments, I would like for us to gather the principles that we find within this Decalogue that will help us understand our God and our relationship with Him. There's there's a very natural division. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. We're going to talk about those this morning. The final six commandments deal with our relationship with others. We're going to talk about that tonight. Let's take a look at these timeless principles as it pertains to the God of the Ten Commandments. Before we actually look at the commandments, though, let's take a look at that verse that preceded there in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. Kind of the foundation that God provides for why the Israelites ought to do what He's about to say. In verse 2 of Exodus 20, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is as if God is saying to the Israelites, you guys don't get a choice. See, we're a democracy. And so we have the idea that we get to come up with our own laws. We get to choose what our laws are going to be. We're going to vote in representatives and we're going to vote on the ones who will go along with our opinions on what should be law and what should not be law. And then, and then we're going to vote on referendums and, and things that might be in our constitutions and our laws and things that won't. But that wasn't the way it was with the Israelites. They didn't get a choice. 
They didn't get to decide what was going to be their law and what was not going to be their law. God said, look, I brought you out of Egypt. You do what I say. They were not a part of a democracy. They were a part of a theocracy. God was king. And brethren, as Christians, we need to realize that that's the same way it is for us. Christ's church is not a democracy. Christ's church is a theocracy. Christ is king. And we don't get a choice in what is the law. Now, the Israelites could choose whether or not to obey the law. But they could not choose what laws applied and didn't apply. And if they didn't obey, they would be judged. And that's the way it is for us as Christians. God has a law. And, and in fact, in 1 John chapter 4, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, He says, we love because He first loved us. It's as if God says, look, I loved you. I brought you out of captivity. Now you need to love me back. You need to do what I say. And we don't get to decide what loving God means. Loving God means keeping His commandments. John says. Jesus says. And we need to follow that. But there's a second point that we need to make as we introduce ourselves to these commandments. Something very interesting. As we look at these commandments, notice how every single one of them begin. In verse 3, you shall... Verse 4, you shall not. Verse 5, you shall not. Verse 7, you shall not. On it goes. Every single one of them start with that, uh, that second person singular, you. And I think God is accomplishing two things. First of all, in one sense, it is as though God was personifying the entire Israelite nation as a single individual. But secondly, and more importantly, think about the impact of every time a child of God under the Old Covenant went to the Ten Commandments and heard what it said. It was as though the person reading it said to them directly, you shall do this. So every time Don reads it, it says, you, Don, shall do this. Every time Clayton reads it, you, Clayton, shall do this. Every time I read it, it's you. Every single one of us, as we read that, it's written to us as individuals. We don't, there's, there's no equivocation. There's no ability to say, well, no, 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 wait a minute. As Israelites saying, well, that's not me. He wasn't talking to me. How can we say that? And he says, you. In reality, that's the same way it is with us as Christians. When we take a look at the New Covenant, we take a look at God's law for us. God is writing to us. He's writing to you. And we don't get to say, this isn't about me, this is about them. We've got to say, this book was given to me. What does God mean for me? out of this book. And I think about what happened in John chapter 21. At the very end of the Gospel of John, as Jesus has that very touching moment with Peter. And he points out to Peter at the end of this Gospel how he's going to die. And in verse 20 of John 21, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we consider traditionally to be the, uh, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus was saying to Peter, he said, look, don't be so worried about John and what I'm going to have John do. You worry about you. First and foremost, God did not give us the Scripture so we could tell everybody else what to do. God gave us the Scripture so that we could learn how we're supposed to live. And we have got to remember that. That's its primary place in our life. What does it say to me? What does it say to you? 
But Jesus is telling us how to live. So let's take a look now at those first four commandments. And what do those tell us about God and the relationship of God's child with Him? The first commandment says there in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before Me. In the historical context of this commandment, we look in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, and we hear, Now therefore fear the Lord. This is Joshua 24 and verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Excuse me, the Israelites were surrounded by nations who followed false gods. They had always been surrounded by nations who followed false gods, and they would always be surrounded by nations who followed false gods. And Joshua here is telling them, it's time to make a choice. Which God are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the one true living God, or are you going to serve these other gods? He says, that's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. Now, we understand that this commandment is not conceding the existence of other deities. Rather, what God is condemning is that we might consider anything or anyone other than Jehovah as divine, and that we might set them up in our heart as divine. And we recognize that the principle behind this command is timeless. Jesus Himself, in Matthew chapter 4, And verse 10, when Satan was tempting him, said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. That's our authority. Jesus Christ saying that. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. We are to have no other gods. We are to treat nothing else and no one else as divine as as the Lord of our life. God alone, Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, That is our God. And it's not enough just to say that is our God. Fulfilling this principle and this relationship with God is making God our Lord. The sovereign ruler in our lives. Devoting ourselves to Him to such an extent that there is no devotion left over for anyone else as divine or deity in our lives. So think about this. Venus, Bacchus, Mars, they're not popular these days. However, the sex, the alcohol, and the power that they represented still vie for our submission. And there are a few people, certainly no one in this room this morning, that are going to go home today and pray to Venus or Bacchus or or Mars. But how many even Christians devote their lives to the sins that they represented? allowing those things to rule and govern in our life. Have no other gods before me. Jesus said you can't serve more than one master. You'll end up clinging to one and despising the other. You'll hate one and love the other. We just can't have two masters. We have to let God be our master. And that means doing what he says. Timeless principle. That's what our relationship with God is about. Letting him be God in our life. Devoting ourselves totally and solely to him. The second commandment, there in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, you shall not make a carved image. Now, this command was not meant to suggest that there were not allowed to be any statues, period, but rather that they weren't supposed to have statues of religious significance. You weren't supposed to make statues that were supposed to represent God. And please understand that. This second commandment is not a repeat of the first. The first one said, don't have any gods other than me. The second one is saying, don't try to represent me by using these material things on the earth. Because that is exactly what the Israelites did over and over again as they violated this command. Not that they necessarily followed false gods, but they tried to establish idols and statues that represented their God. In Exodus 32, when they built the golden calf, Aaron says, here's the God that delivered you from Egypt. He was just saying, here's the representation of God. When Jeroboam divided off the kingdom and he set up the idols and Dan and Beersheba, he wasn't saying go after gods other than Jehovah. He built calves and said, these are Jehovah. And that was wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Idols, statues, even the ones representing the one true God. This commandment was saying, don't do that. You're not supposed to follow those. And think about the problem there. How could we? How could a lifeless lump of clay or metal or wood represent the true and living God? Romans, I think, demonstrates the problem with this. In Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, for although they knew God, this is Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Whenever we start to establish some type of image of what God is, we are exchanging His true glory for something that is less. Think about it. How can the lifeless remotely represent the source of life? How can the localized represent the omnipresent? How can that which has absolutely no knowledge represent Him who has all knowledge? How can that which has absolutely no power represent Him who has all power? It can't. And the moment that is done, the glory of God is exchanged for something less. But the real issue for us is not that we're going to create statues. The fact is that's been so honed in in our minds that we wouldn't remotely create a statue of God. Uh, I mean, we're going to argue about whether or not we're even allowed to have crosses on top of the Lord's Supper trays because somebody might view that as an idol. We're not going to build statues, right? 
But how often do we bring God down to our level in other ways? Because that's the problem with idolatry. It's bringing God down to our level. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says, Look, as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. God is different from us. But in how many ways do we make God like us? When we make improvisations to His will and not follow His pattern and violate what He has authorized, we're making God like us. Thinking that He'll want things just the way we want things. When we get mad at God because He doesn't do what we have prayed and He doesn't do it on our time schedule, we're making God like us because we expect Him to do things exactly the way we want done. In how many ways do we violate this timeless principle by trying to make God like us? But there's a second aspect of this that also is a timeless principle, and that is that we're not allowed to worship God just however we want. I want you to think about this. What was going on with these idols? Jeroboam sets up the idols in Dan and Beersheba, and I can imagine Jeroboam arguing with some of the Levitical priests and saying, look, guys, it doesn't matter how we worship Him as long as Jehovah is our Lord. And yet God said, no, you worship my way. You don't set up these idols. You don't do what seems good to you. I mean, let's face it. For most people, it seems natural and good to have some type of representation. They wanted to see Him. That's what happened in Exodus 32. They wanted to see something that looked like God to them so they could focus their mind on it. Worship Him however we want. But John 4 and verse 24 says we're supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9 says our worship becomes vain if we follow after the commandments of men. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We've got to do His will. We don't get to worship God however we want. The third commandment, this one. Back in Exodus chapter 20, this time beginning in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We need to understand that the concept of the name, especially as used in Scripture, is not a reference merely to the letters or the word that is the name. And so when... God commanded that the Israelites not take the name of the Lord in vain. He wasn't just saying, don't use that word Jehovah in a vain and useless way. It included that, but it wasn't solely that, because the name is the representation of the being. For instance, about us. David is not just the word for David Coleman. When we hear David, somebody says David Coleman, all we think about is D-A-V-I-D, C-O-L-E-M-A-N. No, that name represents a person, right? And, and when that name is called up, the, the, the entirety of that person and what we know about them is called into our mind because that name is the representation of the person himself. And so when God says, don't take my name in vain, it's not just about the Word, but it's about God. And when His name is used lightly, then God Himself has been treated lightly 
and vainly. So he says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And we need to think about that. Timeless principle. We are not to treat God with disdain. We're not to treat God lightly. We shouldn't use His name lightly. When we use His name to back up falsehood, that is using His name lightly. That is using His name vainly. When we use His name as, as just an expression of frustration or an expression of shock, that is using His name lightly. And, you know, I guess maybe we need to just hone in on that just a little bit because it just kills me. Um, you know, I, I watched that show once. With Extreme Makeovers, that's the one where they take a house and tear it down and build it back up in a week or something like that. And, you know, it's just so extremely emotional because it's always somebody who's in this really bad way and this is just a really great thing for them. And they finally come into the street and they open the door and what's the first thing they always say? Every single one of them, what's the first thing they say? Oh, my I remember in Spanish class one time, when I was in high school, the teacher tried telling us, you know, now over in Spain, it's different. They'll say, I think it was Dios mío or something like that. That's Spanish for, oh my God. And I was told, now see, in Spain, it's something completely different because they really mean that as words of praise. Whatever. Don't use God's name lightly, because when you use God's name lightly, you are treating God lightly. And Psalm 111 and verse 9 says, Holy and awesome is His name. And that's how we need to treat Him. Holy and awesome. And if we're going to use God's name, we better be using it with awe and with reverence. But for us as Christians, this goes beyond just how we might use that word. I think about Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This points out that everything we as Christians do is in the name of the Lord. We carry His name. What is it that we're called? Christ ends. We carry His name. And everything we do should be done in His name. And so when we disregard His Word and we live how we want to live, we are treating lightly the name of the Lord. Because we are treating lightly what He has authorized and empowered. And so when we as Christians come to church on Sunday but live like atheists throughout the week, we're taking the name of the Lord in vain. We're wearing His name in vain. When we discard His law, we're wearing His name in vain. And whether that law be that we should respect our husbands or love our wives, whether that be that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, whether that be that we shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal, or murder, or commit adultery, if we're violating God's law, we are wearing His name in vain. 
That's our relationship with God. We should not treat His name vainly, either in word or in deed. And finally this morning, the fourth command. Maybe. The fourth command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I understand Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. That passage there says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath law was a shadow of the reality that we now have in Jesus. Let, let me just go ahead and point this out to you. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, okay? The Christian Sabbath, according to Hebrews, is our eternal rest in heaven. We've got to remember that, okay? But there is still a timeless principle behind this law that I think we need to recognize that helps us understand our relationship with God. Why did God give the Sabbath? Well, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a day of rest. He kept in His law the fact that the Israelites needed a day of rest. They could work for six days, but they had to take one day and they had to rest from work. One of the things that we know about people is that we've got to have rest. If somebody is just going and going and going and they're working and they're working and they're working, sooner or later they're going to burn out mentally, emotionally, and physically. And God had it in His law, protection against that. You see, with this fourth commandment, we see the compassion of God. With the first three commandments, as we consider all those mean for our all that those mean for our lives, we might become a little bit overwhelmed thinking about what it means about what we, we have to do for God. But the fourth commandment reminds us, think about what God has done for you. And it reminds us of the compassion and the love and the kindness of our God. And for us as Christians, it makes me think about what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 25. James 1 and verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, what kind of law is it? The law of liberty. And then in chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's a law. There is law. There are commands. There are rules. Don't think the fact that it's a law of liberty means that that doesn't exist. But what kind of law is it? It is a law of liberty. It is a law that's not given to restrict us, but given to set us free from the things from which we need to be set free. It doesn't set us free from God's rule. It sets us free from Satan's rule. It sets us free from sin. It sets us free from despair. It sets us free from discouragement. The law of God is a law of liberty that God has given to us to be compassionate and caring and kind and to protect us from ourselves. Because there's a way that seems right to a man and where does it end up? Death. If God hadn't given us the law of liberty, we'd, we'd kill ourselves. Spiritually. Law of liberty. And it reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. That is how compassionate our God is. He's given us the commands that we should be solely devoted to Him. He's given us the commands that we should not make Him like us, but we should follow His rules, His way, and worship Him His way. He's given us the command and the principle that we need to recognize that our entire lives are supposed to treat God with awe and reverence and holiness submitting to His will. And then He reminds us, but I'm with you the whole way and I am not going to let anything happen that forces you out of this. You're not ever going to be tempted beyond what you're able. I'll be there with you and I'll provide the way of escape because that is how compassionate and caring our God is. And yes, that was how compassionate and caring God was in the Old Testament. It amazes me. It amazes me the number of people who talk about that Old Testament God who was fierce and harsh and, and judgmental and He was striking people dead. And Oh, but now we're into the New Covenant with this, with this God of just grace and love. He's always been a God of grace and love. And He's always been a God of judgment and always will be both. And we have to take both. And so, let's remember the God of the Ten Commandments. Why do we need to remember it? Not because the Ten Commandments are our authority, but because the God who gave the Ten Commandments to Israel is still God today. And those principles that we learn about God from those Ten Commandments, those principles still apply. Let's devote ourselves to God solely and completely. Let us not pull God down to our level. Let us not think we can serve God our way. Let us treat God's name with honor and reverence and respect and do that in word and in deed. And let's always remember the compassion and kindness of our God so that we'll always turn to Him.